Hello and welcome to another Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. A couple of election pamphlets dropped through my door last week, and one of them was for my local Scottish National Party candidate. And then later on, the very same day, a surprise announcement that the COVID travel restrictions that have been in place since January are to be lifted a week early. I'm sure there's no connection. I mean, the original planned date for the lifting of the restrictions was going to be this Friday, the 26th of April, just over a week before the election for the Scottish Parliament. Am I being cynical or is it that the party needs more time to rebuild support? I think over the next few weeks we'll be hearing a lot about how our Nicola has courageously fought the pandemic and won Her tough measures have beaten the disease and saved lives. Just as the warm spring weather arrives and people are enjoying their first taste of freedom for months, she'll be basking in the glory and reminding us to use our votes wisely. But what's going to happen when winter comes? I've heard rumours from friends who have friends working in certain branches of education who say that they've been briefed that another lockdown is being planned for this coming autumn. Is it just gossip? I have no idea. But if if it is true, and I've no idea if it is, it would, of course, assume considerable foreknowledge. Is there a risk of a third wave? What are the chances of VADE, V-A-D-E, or Vaccine-Associated Disease Enhancement, or VARD, Vaccine-Associated Enhanced Respiratory Disease, triggering a third wave of coronavirus symptoms in autumn? Vaccine-Associated Disease Enhancement is when immunisation with a vaccine actually increases the severity of the disease instead of reducing it. Well, going by the public assessment records on the COVID vaccines that were published by the MHRA, the UK's medical regulatory agency, back in January, that risk would seem to be considerable. The public assessment record for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine describes VAD or VIRD. These are acronyms that seem to change their spelling from time to time. But basically, it's vaccine-associated disease enhancement or vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease as important potential risks. And the report explains further, vaccine-associated enhanced disease, in brackets VAD, including vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease, in brackets VARD, has been included as a potential risk. This is a theoretical risk which is relevant to all COVID-19 vaccines based on VAD having been seen in animal models for vaccines developed for for SARS-CoV-1, in brackets a similar but not identical virus to SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID-19, close brackets, and also seen in association with use of another respiratory virus vaccine, the respiratory syncytal virus in brackets, RSV vaccine. There is currently no evidence from non-clinical or clinical data of an association of VAD slash VARD with COVID-19 mRNA vaccine BNT162B2. This potential risk will be further investigated as part of the pharmacovigilance plan of this vaccine. 
So what they seem to be saying is, it's pretty inconclusive, but we'll see what happens down the line. The document then provides further details of ongoing and planned studies to gauge various effects of the COVID-19 vaccine, including concerns over VAD and VARD. The public assessment report for the Moderna vaccine also describes VAD and VARD as, quotes, important potential risks, close quotes. And it adds that... Vaccine-associated enhanced disease, in brackets VAD, including vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease, in brackets VARD, has been included as a potential risk. This is a a theoretical risk which is relevant to all COVID-19 vaccines based on VAD, having been seen in animal models for vaccines developed for SARS-CoV-1, in brackets a similar but not identical virus to SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID-19, close brackets, and also seen in association with use of another respiratory virus vaccine, the respiratory syncytial virus, in brackets RSV vaccine. There is currently no evidence from non-clinical or clinical data of an association of VAD slash VARD with COVID-19 vaccine Moderna. This potential risk will be further investigated as part of the pharmacovigilance plan of this vaccine. The document does say that based on studies on mice, COVID-19 vaccine Moderna is expected to be an effective vaccine that does not drive vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease. And let's hope that this is the case. The public assessment report for the AstraZeneca vaccine also identifies vaccine-associated enhanced disease, in other words, VAD, as an important risk and adds that vaccine-associated enhanced disease in brackets VAD, including vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease, in brackets VARD, is a theoretical risk which is relevant to all COVID-19 vaccines. Currently, there are only two cases of severe COVID-19 that have been reported in any dose efficacy set, both in the control group, limiting any conclusions that can be drawn. However, the type of immune response triggered by the vaccine, in brackets TH1 skewed, close brackets, and the number of COVID-19 hospitalizations in any dose efficacy set, in brackets 2 versus 16, close brackets, provides reassurance. It is recognized that VARD may not become apparent until efficacy of the vaccine starts to wane. This is an important potential risk in the RMP risk management plan, and will be monitored via routine and additional pharmacovigilance activities. So this shows that there is a real risk of VAD or VARD. And there were several articles discussing this risk and even warning of it last year before the first vaccine was produced. One of these was an article for ABC Health and Wellbeing in Australia entitled We've never made a successful coronavirus vaccine before. This is why it's so difficult. It was published in April 2020, and it quotes Professor Ian Fraser from the University of Queensland. It says, There are several reasons why our upper respiratory tract is a hard area to target a vaccine. It's a separate immune system, if you like, which isn't easily accessible by vaccine technology. 
And then the magazine continues to add that the upper respiratory tract feels very much like it's inside your body, but it's actually considered an external surface for the purposes of immunisation. And Professor Ian Fraser is further quoted in the magazine as saying, It's a bit like trying to get a vaccine to kill a virus on the surface of your skin. One of the problems with corona vaccines in the past has been that when the immune response does cross over to where the virus-infected cells are, it actually increases the pathology rather than reducing it. So that immunisation with SARS corona vaccine caused, in animals, inflammation in the lungs, which wouldn't otherwise have been there if the vaccine hadn't been given. I think it would be fair to say, even if we get something which looked quite encouraging in animals, the safety trials in humans will have to be fairly extensive before we would think about vaccinating a group of people who have not yet been exposed to the virus. They might hope to get protection, but certainly wouldn't be keen to accept a possibility of really serious side effects if they actually caught the virus. And the American scientific journal Nature published an article in October 2020 with the title Learning from the Past, Development of Safe and Effective COVID-19 Vaccines, which goes into a lot of scientific detail to warn about the potential dangers of AIDS, ADE, which means antibody-dependent enhancement, and VADE, V-A-D-E, vaccine-associated disease enhancement. And again, the problem with all these acronyms is that their, their spellings often change, which makes it difficult to track down these references online. VADE is usually spelt V-A-D-E, but in the UK MHRA public assessment reports, it's spelt V-A-E-D. I'll put the links to all these documents in the show notes. Suffice it to say that there is a recognised risk here that people who have had any of these vaccines could actually become more susceptible to coronavirus, maybe even to the more serious effects of the virus, if it appears again. And the most likely time for colds, viruses, and especially coronaviruses, to start circulating again is the autumn to winter period. So when the colder weather starts, the inevitable season of colds and flu, with so many people having had this vaccine, with the risks of vaccine-enhanced disease enhancement clearly spelled out in the, in the reports, the whole cycle could start again. And if it does, who or what will be blamed? I expect that the unvaccinated will be seen as the culprits. That, together with the lifting of restrictions over summer. That's where the finger will be pointed. If this horrible scenario does occur, and I pray to God that it doesn't, I think it would be evil of the kind that the Nazis would have thought up, and much more subtle than the kind of atrocities they carried out. To be honest, I'm still astonished at the willingness of so many people just to take these vaccines, these untested vaccines, simply because someone on the telly or the radio tells them that they should. I wonder if people are even advised of the potential risks that are listed in the public assessment reports before they get the vaccine. Though I'm not sure if that would deter them anyway. One of my friends told me that someone she knew told her that they would rather risk getting a blood clot than getting COVID. All I can say is that they probably don't really understand what a blood clot is. 
And of course, it's rare, but the vaccine's untested, so you really are taking your chances, in my opinion. There certainly has been a lot of sinister propaganda, as I discussed in my last podcast. I'm not surprised that there's a behavioural team behind all this, paid by our taxes, of course. But I am surprised at how malevolent the propaganda is. One example of what I think is deliberate social conditioning is a phrase that's repeated a lot in the mainstream media. And that phrase is tested positive for COVID. That phrase conjures up images of the AIDS pandemic, where certainly in the early days, getting an HIV positive test result was a death sentence. And it would likely have been a very unpleasant kind of death. Thankfully, the prognosis for HIV is much more hopeful these days. And of course, some people have suffered very unpleasant deaths due to COVID-19. But this is statistically very rare. So having a COVID-positive test is nothing like the same as having an HIV-positive test was in the 1980s. But somehow that freeze, the horror of that freeze, lingers. In February to April 2020, the risk of dying from COVID would have been considerably higher, but still very low for people under 70. But even given that, testing positive for COVID is far from being a death sentence. It's far from even being inevitable that you'll get sick if you get a COVID-19 positive test. And yet that freeze, testing positive for COVID, has an air of doom about it. I've seen headlines on the BBC News saying that some celebrity has tested positive for COVID. It reminds me of the time back in the early 1990s when I put on on the radio one day, just in the middle of a news bulletin, just in time to hear the, the news reader say, Queen has AIDS. I spent a whole hour thinking that the Queen had AIDS. And at the next news bulletin, I heard the whole thing as the newsreader said, it has been confirmed that Freddie Mercury of the band Queen has AIDS. It was such a shock in those days when you heard that someone had tested positive for HIV or AIDS. And it's probably the same when you hear the confirmation that someone has terminal cancer. But someone testing positive for COVID is not likely to die, especially if it's a PCR test. To me, this is all part of the sinister fear conditioning and manipulation of people's basest instincts. And I do think this is heading in the direction of more lockdowns, endless lockdowns, if people continue to allow it. I responded to a public consultation for Police Scotland at the end of March. And it clearly showed that they're wanting to introduce a kind of digital surveillance state. And I don't think that this is an exaggeration. It's not the kind of thing I ever thought the SNP government would want to bring in when I used to vote for them back in the early 2000s. But I do think this is the way things will go if any of the big political parties are in power. And it's going to be the kind of thing that we saw in England during the first lockdown, especially during the early early days, when, for example, a couple walking their dog in the Peak District were filmed by drones, police drones, because they were flouting the regulations and they were shamed on public on social media. 
The Police Scotland consultation was referring to a document known as the Public Contact and Engagement Strategy 2020. Though it wasn't making it blindingly obvious, the questions in the consultation were structured to give the impression that people were just being asked to comment on whether they were happy with policing in their local area. In fact, the questions were so anodyne, with just occasional references to things like policing in the digital age, that, to be honest, I felt that someone, something was being concealed. So when one of the questions towards the end of the consultation asked people to comment on the public contact and engagement strategy document, I thought I'd better have a look at it. I had to search for it online and when I found it, it wasn't riveting reading. It was just full of anodyne waffle with innocuous sounding language, like creating an accessible and seamless public experience enabled by digital services collaborating to tackle public safety and well-being challenges using a whole public service approach, improving the reach of our public and community engagement in initiatives, and just wading through all this waffle, it felt like it was just enough to put you to sleep. But I did persevere, and I had to get to page 30 before I actually got to the meat of what the document was actually saying. I had to wade through acres of brightly coloured little blobs floating around on the page, looking quite good, but with really just innocuous sounding tripe. Things like, we will transform the way that people can contact to us and how we resolved their inquiries. Citizens should be able to influence decisions that affect them. Proactive, strategic alignment, strategic overview, confidence and in policing, little boxes about who they consulted and diagrams and strategic ob objectives, motivational comments, um, like creating an accessible and seamless public experience enabled by digital services, empowering our people to manage public contact, harm and vulnerability, collaborating to tackle public safety and well-being challenges using a whole public service approach, improving the reach of our public and community engagement activities. I mean, it all just sounds so wholesome focused on people, bringing empathy, meeting expectations, using integrity, achieving resolution, being focused and effective, culture and leadership, engaged and empowered people. And then data, digital and ICT, this DDICT, that's the real, that's the real heart of this content. And then partnerships of collaboration and collaboration. So on data, digital and and ICT, or Information and Communications Technology, the standout bullet points say optimised contact platform capability for digital, connected data systems in brackets cross-channel, consistent and single view of the user journey, quality data and insights in brackets local and national, long-term partnership with technology supplier, pretty meaningless really and then there's another brightly coloured blob page threats to public safety and well-being are resolved by a proactive and responsive police service the needs of local communities are addressed through effective service delivery increasing public safety and well-being blah 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 empowering po colleagues blah 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 
just the same thing over and over again. It all sounds great, but very it doesn't sound convincing. It all seems designed to put you into some sort of hypnotic trance so that you don't notice the more concerning aspects, disturbing aspects of the whole dedict policy. I mean, obviously, it will have advantages, but there could also be potential dangers. So all of the more disturbing side of it, the, the, all of the more serious aspects of this are couched in this kind of fluffy product puff type speech that just really means nothing. And it just goes on and on in this vein and then there's more brightly coloured information on demographics and how people, you know, statistical information. It just looks like a brand marketing document for some big corporate, to be honest. And it's not until you get to page 31 that it really spells out what this is about. And it says, our aims empower the public to interact with police in ways that are supportive and appropriate to them, etc. So it sounds, it's, it's, framed in a way that it makes it sound as if it's all about allowing the public or giving the public different ways to contact the police, which is great because, you know, I go, I do a lot of hill walking. It's good to know that I can use my mobile phone to contact the police if I get into difficulties. So obviously that's great, but it doesn't really talk about the other side of this, that wherever you are, the police can contact you. And that has very serious implications. They say we will be able to connect with smartphones and voice assistive technologies, for example, home devices and watches, to communicate with the caller via live video, text and voice assistive technology. With the caller's consent, we will be able to record device, identify their precise location and communicate in the language in their language to help us provide the appropriate response, which is great. But what's the other side of that? Does that mean that the police can monitor you through your home devices and watches and smartphones? It goes on to say, ensure public can reach us using voice-assisted technologies. For example, smart home devices and smart watches in situations where the public may, might not be able to, re to reach a phone or dial 999. So I don't know what they even mean by smart home devices. But it does seem to me that there's going to be a lot of surveillance coming in, that whatever these devices can do goes both ways. And a lot of people, of course, as usual, will probably say, well, it doesn't bother me because I'm not a criminal. But if you can be criminalised for walking your dog in a nice country area, then I think there are a lot of concerns raised by this. On page 32, it says, Our aims enable officers and staff through digital to assess and record the situation quickly and more robustly. We will know more about the history and needs of the person contacting us through our integrated customer relationship management CRM system, which will improve their experience. I would have thought it would improve the police's experience as well if you phone the police and immediately all your history. I don't know what kind of history they're talking about. Hopefully not your health history. Goodness knows if that all of that suddenly is available to them at the touch of a button. 
our service advisors will be able to activate digital contact and connect to the, the caller's smartphone to assess a live view of the situation and needs of the, of the individual, obtaining precise location, communicating in different languages via live chat and recording live evidence, which all sounds brilliant. So there are certainly advantages, but there are also very serious dangers that should be considered, and they're certainly not considered in this puff brand sort of um, document, this anodyne document. And then they go on to talk about drones, or in other words, remotely piloted aircraft systems, in brackets, RPAS, another of those terrible acronyms. The operator will also be able to activate remotely pi piloted aircraft systems to film the incident if needed. I mean, it doesn't say who the operator is, so presumably that's the police. This will add both operational and evidential value. And again, it doesn't say, it doesn't spell it out. Who is the operator? Is it the police? Presumably it is. Is it any of the police? In what circumstances would this happen? Would it happen if you've strayed outside your local authority and there's another lockdown? It's, it just doesn't spell out the hard facts that you need when technology at this level is being rolled out. Yes, of course there are advantages, but the dangers are considerable, more than considerable. Officers will also be able to record statements, evidence, their observations and community feedback using audio or video through their mobile devices, which automatically update police databases. Case files will be updated and core operational databases checked on the go. Other colleagues are able to quickly pick up evidence case details and prepare to meet the service user. And then there's more of this anodyne waffle, just pages and pages of it, all making it sound so harmless and so innocuous and loving, you know, this great relationship with the public. But on page... 39, there's another worrying paragraph that's entitled Innovation, Automation and AI. And it says, Automation will ensure Pol Police Scotland can move ahead in this area at pace and this will be considered to integrate new technologies and optimise our preferred solutions. Further consideration with appropriate public and wider engagement will be undertaken in advance of any initiatives progressing. It's a meaningless paragraph, and that's why I find it worrying, because AI means artificial intelligence. So what, what the hell are they talking about? Are they talking about Robocop? Are they talking about those dogs that they've developed, those robotic dogs that they've developed in the States? I mean, you just don't know. The mind boggles because of the lack of information here. I think with the last sentence, they're saying that they're not going to proceed without further public consultation. But again, it's written in such wishy-washy phrasing that you just don't know. And then it goes back to this just meaningless waffle. I don't know if it's meaningful to someone, but it just looks to me as if all the serious stuff is sandwiched between fluff, this, these, this meaningless fluff and sort of product puff type things with sentences like placeholder finance input to align with dedict and funding. Our outcomes-focused performance framework is linked to our strategies and plans. 
A range of qualitative and quantitative performance indicators will be measured to show process as follows, blah, blah, blah. And then there's another brightly coloured page twisted sideways. So you're, I think you're meant to have it as a colour document. Focused on people, meet expectations, achieve resolution, bring empathy, use integrity, focused and effective. It just sounds like a PR brochure for a new product and I don't trust it one bit. I do think that we are just frog marching or being frog marched into a police state. I would like to say that I never thought I would see this happening in my own country but in fact I did voice fears that something like this might happen about a year before it actually did. I'm talking about the whole scamdemic at the moment. I was looking for something on my computer the other day and I stumbled across a document that I'd copied in April 2019, almost a year before the pandemic started. I'd copied it from Facebook and it must have disturbed me a lot because I don't usually copy Facebook conversations. One of my Facebook friends has a significant following in alternative health circles and he likes to discuss provocative topics on Facebook. One of the topics he discussed was on vaccinations. And I entered the debate. I'm not going to go into all the various comments but because it's not relevant. But I entered the debate not as an anti-vaxxer, but saying that I thought it was very important that people had the choice over what they put in their bodies. My final comment on the subject was this. And this was from April 2019. I think this is increasingly becoming a human rights issue. Because we're moving towards a situation where unvaccinated people are being denied access to certain services. I think this has very worrying implications. And policy is increasingly being indirectly dictated by big business, in brackets, e.g. with the flu vaccine, close brackets. Worrying times. So, as I say, I made this statement back in April 2019. And this wasn't because I had some incredible foresight or psychic ability. It's because authorities around the world have been building up to this situation for a very long time. And COVID-19 has given them the opportunity that they have been looking for to put their evil plans into action. And if that sounds exaggerated, it's not. This is pure evil, the opposite of live. And it's just astonishing and quite distressing to me that so many people are blithely going along with it. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>